Chapter Three of Cobb's Anatomy by Irving S. Cobb. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Hair. As I remarked in the preceding chapter of this work, one of the pleasantest features about being born is that we are born without teeth and other responsibilities. Teeth, like debts and installment payments, come along later on. It is the same with hair. Born we are hairless, or comparatively so. We are in a highly incomplete state at that period of our lives. It takes a fond and doting parent to detect evidences of an actual human aspect in us. Only the ears and the mouth appear to be up to the plans and specifications. There is a mouth which, when opened, as it generally is, makes the rest of the face look like a tire, and there is a pair of ears of such generous size that only a third one is needed, round at the back somewhere, to give us the appearance of a loving cup. And we are smocked and hem-stitched with a million wrinkles apiece, more or less, which partly accounts for the fact that every newborn infant looks to be about two hundred years old. And uniformly we have the nice red complexion of a restaurant lobster. You know, that live, broiled look. As for our other features, they are more or less rudimentary. Of a nose there is only what a chemist could call a trace. It seems hard to imagine that a dinky little nubbing like that, a dimple turned inside out, as it were, will ever develop into a regular nose with a capacity for freckling in the summer and catching cold in the winter, a nose that you can sneeze through and blow through. There are no eyebrows to speak of either, and the skull runs up to a sharp point, like a pineapple cheese. Just back of the peak is a kind of soft, dented-in place, like a Parker House roll, and if you touch it, we die. In some cases this spot remains soft throughout life, and these persons grow up and go through railroad trains in presidential years, taking straw votes. And, as I said before, there isn't any hair. Only on the slopes of the cheese are some very pale, faint, downy lines, which look as though they had been sketched on lightly with a very soft drawing pencil, and would wipe off readily. This, however, is the inception and beginning of what afterward becomes among our race, hair. To look at it, you could hardly believe it, but it is. Barring accidents or backwardness, it continues to grow from that time on through our childhood, but its behavior is always a profound disappointment. If the child is a girl and therefore entitled to curly hair, her hair is sure to come in stiff and straight. If it's a boy, to whom curls would be a curse and a cross of affliction, he is morally certain to be as curly as a frizzly chicken, and until he gets old enough to rebel, he will wear long ringlets, and boys of his acquaintance will insert cockleburs and chewing gum into his tresses, and he will be known popularly as Sissy, and otherwise his life will be made joyous and carefree for him. If a reddish tone of hair is desired, it is certain to grow out yellow or brown or black. 
and if brown is your favorite shade, you are absolutely sure to be nice and red-headed, with eyebrows and lashes to match, and so many cowlicks that when you remove your hat, people will think you're wearing two or three halos at once. Hair rarely or never acts up to its advance notices. One of the earliest and most painful recollections of my youth is associated with hair. I still tingle warmly when I think of it. I should say I was about eight years old at the time. My mother sent me down the street to the barber's to have my hair trimmed. Shingled was the term then used. Some of my private collection of cowlicks had begun to stand up in a way that invited adverse criticism and reminded people of sunbursts. They made me look as though my hair were trying to pull itself out by the roots and escape. So I was sent to the barber's. My little cousin, two years younger, went along in my charge. It was thought that the performance might entertain her. I was mounted in a chair and had a cloth tucked in round my neck, like a self-made millionaire about to eat consomme. The officiating barber got out a shiny steel instrument with jaws, the first pair of clippers I had ever seen, and he ran this up the back of my neck, producing a most agreeable feeling. He reached the top of my head and would have paused, but I told him to go right ahead and clip me close all over, which he did. When he had finished the job, I was so delighted with the sensation and with the attendant result as viewed in a mirror that I suggested he might give my little cousin a similar treat. From a mere child I was ever so, willing always to share my simple pleasures with those about me, especially where it entailed no inconvenience on my part. I told him my father would pay the bill for both of us when he came by that night. The barber fell in with the suggestion. It has ever been my experience that a barber will fall in readily with any suggestion whereby the barber is going to get something out of it for himself. In this instance he was going to get another quarter, and a quarter went farther in those days than it does now. I dismounted from the chair, and my innocent little cousin was installed in my place. As I now recall, she made no protest. The barber ran his clippers conscientiously and painstakingly over her tender young scalp, while I stood admiringly by and watched the long yellow curls fall, writhing upon the floor at my feet. It seemed to me that a great and manifest improvement was produced in her general appearance. Instead of being hampered by those silly curls dangling down all round her face, she now had a round, slick, smooth dome decorated with a stiff yellowish stubble, and the skin showed through nice and pink, and the ears were well displayed, whereas before they had been practically hidden. She was also relieved of those foolish bangs hanging down in her eyes. This, I should have stated, occurred in the period when womankind of whatsoever age and also some men wore bangs, a disease from which all have since recovered, with the exception of racehorses and princesses of the various reigning houses of Europe. And now my little cousin was shut of those annoying bangs, and her forehead ran up so high that you had to go round behind her to see where it left off. 
filled with a joyous sense of achievement and conscious of a kindly deed worthily performed i took my little cousin by her hand and led her home my mother was waiting for us at the front door she seemed surprised when i took off my hat and gave her a look but that wasn't a circumstance to her surprise when i proudly took off my little cousin's cap she uttered a kind of strangled cry and my cousin's mother came running and the way she carried on was scandalous and ill-timed i will draw a veil over the proceedings of the next few minutes at the time it would have been a source of great personal gratification and comfort to me if i could have drawn a number of veils good thick woolen ones over the proceedings my mother wept my aunt wept my little cousin wept and i am not ashamed to state that i wept quite copiously myself but i had more provocation to weep than any of them when this part of the affair was over my mother sent me back to the barber with a message i was to say that a heart-broken woman demanded to have the curls of which her darling child had been denuded I believe that there was some idea entertained of sewing them into a cap and requiring my cousin to wear the cap until new ones had sprouted. Even to me, a mere child of eight, this seemed a foolish and totally unnecessary proceeding, but the situation had already become so strained that I thought it the part of prudence to go at once without offering any arguments of my own. I felt, however, that I would rather be away from the house for a while until Commer's second judgment had succeeded excitement and tumult. The man who owned the barber shop seemed surprised when I delivered the message, but he told me to come back in a few minutes and he'd do what he could. I drifted on down to the confectionery store at the corner to forget my sorrows for the moment in a worshipful admiration of a display of prize boxes and cracknels in glass front cases. You should be able to fix the period by the fact that cracknels and prize boxes were still in vogue among the young. When I returned, the head barber handed me quite a large box, a shoe-box, with a string tied round it. It did not seem possible to me that my cousin could have had a whole shoe-box full of curls, but things had been going pretty badly that afternoon, and my motives had been misjudged and everything, so without any talk I took the box and hurried home with it. My mother cut the string, and my aunt lifted the lid. I should prefer again to draw a veil over the scenes that now ensued, but the necessity of finishing this narrative requires me to state that it being a Saturday, and the head barber being a busy man, he had not taken time to sort out my cousin's curls from among the floatsam and jetsam of his establishment, but he had just swept up enough off the floor to make a good assorted boxful. I think the oldest inhabitant had probably dropped in that day to have himself trimmed a little round the edges. I seem to remember a quantity of sandy whiskers shot with gray. There was enough hair in that box, and enough different kinds and colors of hair and stuff, to satisfy almost any taste you would have thought, but my mother and aunt were anything but satisfied. 
on the contrary, far from it. And yet my cousin's hair was all there. If they had only been willing to spend a few days sorting it out and separating it from the other contents. In this particular instance I was the exception to the rule that hair generally gives a boy no great trouble from the time he emerges out of babyhood until he puts on long pants and begins to discern something strangely and subtly attractive about the sex described by Mr. Kipling as being the more deadly of the species. During this interim it is a matter of no moment to a boy whether he goes shaggy or cropped shorn or unshorn. At intervals a frugal parent trims him to see if both his ears are still there, or else a barber does it with more thoroughness, often recovering small articles of household use that have been mysteriously missing for months. But in the main he goes along carefree and unbarbered, not greatly concerned with putting anything in his head or taking anything off of it. In due season, though, he reaches the age where adolescent whiskers and young romance begin to sprout out on him simultaneously, and from that moment on, for the rest of his life, his hair is giving him bother, and plenty of it. Your hair gives you bother as long as you have it, and more bother when it starts to go. You are always doing something for it, and it is always showing deep-dyed ingratitude in return. Or else the dye isn't deep enough, which is even worse. Hair is responsible for such by-products as dandruff, barbers, wigs, several comic weeklies, mental anguish, added expense, Chinese revolutions, and the standard joke about a wife's using your best razor to open a can of tomatoes with. Hair has been of aid to Buffalo Bill, little Lord Fauntleroy, Samson, the Lady Godiva, Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy, poets, pianists, some artists, and most mattress-makers. But a drawback and a sorrow to Epsilon, polar bears in captivity, and the male sex in general. This assertion goes not only for hair on the head, but for hair on the face. Let us consider for a moment the matter of shaving. If you shave yourself, you excite a barber's contempt, and there is nobody whose contempt the average man dreads more than a barber's, unless it is a waiter's. And on the other hand, if you let a barber shave you, he excites not your contempt particularly, but your rage and frequently your undying hatred. Once, in a burst of confidence, a barber told me one of the trade secrets of his profession. He said that among barbers every face fell into one of three classes, it being either a square, a round, or a squirrel. I know not, reader, whether yours be a square, or a round, or a squirrel, but this much I will chance on a venture, sight unseen, that you have your periods of intense unhappiness when you are being shaved. I do not refer so much to the actual process of being shaved. Indeed, there is something restful and soothing to the average male adult in the feel of a sharp razor being guided over a bristly jowl by a deft and skillful hand to the accompaniment of a gentle grating sound and followed by a sensation of transient silken smoothness. 
nor do I refer to the barber's habit of conversation. After all, a barber is human, he has to talk to somebody, and it might as well be you. If he didn't have you to talk to, he'd have to talk to another barber, and that would be no treat to him. What I refer to is that which precedes a shave, and more especially that which follows after it. You rush in for a shave. In ten minutes you have an engagement to be married, or something else important, and you want a shave, and you want it quick. Does the barber take cognizance of the emergency? He does not. Such would be contrary to the ethics of his calling. Knowing from your own lips that you want a shave, and that's positively all, he nevertheless is instantly filled with a burning desire to equip you with a large number of other things. In this regard, the barbering profession has much in common with the haberdashering or gents furnishing profession as practiced in our larger cities. You invade a haberdashering establishment for the purpose, let us say, of investing in a plain and simple pair of half-hose, price twenty-five cents. That emphatically is all that you desire. You so state in plain, simple language, using the shorter and uglier word, socks. Does the youth in the pale mauve shirt with the marquee ring on the little finger of his left hand rest content with this? Need I answer this question? In succession, he tries to sell you a fancy waistcoat with large pearl buttons, a broken lot of silk pajamas, a bathrobe, some shrimp pink underwear. He wears this kind himself, he tells you in strict confidence. A pair of plush suspenders and a knitted necktie that you wouldn't be caught wearing at twelve o'clock at night in the bottom of a coal mine during a total eclipse of the moon. If you resist his blandishments and so far forget that you are a gentleman as to use harsh language, and if you insist on a pair of socks and nothing else, he'll let you have them, but he will never feel the same toward you as he did. Tis much the same with a barber. You need a shave in a hurry, and he is willing that you should have a shave, he being there for that purpose. But first and last he can think of upward of thirty or forty other things that you ought to have, including a shampoo, a haircut, a hair singe, a hair tonic, a hair oil, a manicure, a facial massage, a scalp massage, a Turkish bath, his opinion on the merits of the newest white hope, a shoeshine, some kind of a skin food, and a series of comparisons of the weather we are having this time this month with the weather we were having this time last month. Not all of us are gifted with the power of repartee by which my friend Frisbee turned the edge of the barber's desires. "'Your hair,' said the barber, fondling a truant lock, "'is long.' "'I know it is,' said Frisbee. "'I like it long. It's so relcrofty.' "'It is very long,' said the barber, with a wistful expression. "'I like it long,' said Frisby. "'I like to have people come up to me on the street and call me Mr. Sutherland "'and ask me how I left my sisters. "'I like to be mistaken for a Russian pianist. "'I like for strangers to stop me and ask me how's everything up at East Aurora. "'In short, I like it long.' 
"'Yes, sir,' said the barber. "'Quite so, sir. Uh, but it's very long, particularly here in the back. It covers your coat collar. "'Indeed,' said Frisbee. "'You say it covers my coat collar?" "'Yes, sir,' said the barber. "'You can't see the coat collar at all.' "'Have you a good sharp pair of shears here?' said Frisbee. "'Oh, yes, sir,' said the barber. "'All right.' said Frisbee. Cut the collar off. But not all of us, as I said before, have this ready gift of parry and thrust that distinguishes my friend Frisbee. Mostly we weakly surrender. Or if we refuse to surrender, demanding just a shave by itself and nothing else, what then follows? In my own case, speaking personally, I know exactly what follows. I do not like to have any powder dabbed on my face when I am through shaving. I believe in letting the bloom of youth show through your skin, providing you have any bloom of youth to do so. I always take pains to state my views in this regard at least twice during the operation of being shaved, once at the start when the barber has me all lathered up, with soap suds dripping from the flanges of my shell-like ears and running down my neck, and once again toward the close of the operation, when he has laid aside his razor and is sousing my defenseless features in a liquid that smells and tastes a good deal like those scented pink blotters they used to give away at drugstores to advertise somebody's cologne. Does the barber respect my wishes in this regard? Certainly not. He insists on powdering me, either before my eyes or surreptitiously and in a clandestine manner. If he didn't powder me up, he would lose his sense of self-respect, and probably the Union would take his card away from him. I think there is something in the Constitution and by-laws requiring that I be powdered up. I have fought the good fight for years, but I am always powdered. Sometimes the crafty foe dissembles. He pretends that he is not going to powder me up. But all of a sudden, when my back is turned, as it were, he grabs up his powder swab and makes a quick swoop upon me, and the hellish deed is done. I should be pleased to hear from other victims of this practice, suggesting any practical relief short of homicide. I do not wish to kill a barber. There are several other orders in ahead, referring to the persons I intend to kill off first, but I may be driven to it. After he has gashed me casually hither and yen, and sluiced down my helpless countenance with the carefree abandon of a livery stable hand washing off a buggy, and after, as above stated, he has covered up the traces of his crime with powder, the barber next takes a towel and folds it over his right hand, as prescribed in the rules and regulations, and then he dabs me with that towel on various parts of my face nine hundred and seventy-four, nine hundred and seventy-four separate and distinct times. I know the exact number of dabs, because I have taken the trouble to keep count. I may be in as great a hurry as you can imagine." I may be but a poor nervous wreck already, as I am. I may be quivering to be up and away from there. But he dabs me with his towel. 
He dabs me until reason totters on her throne, sometimes just a tiny tot, as the saying goes, or it may be that the whole cerebral structure is involved. And then, when he is apparently all through, the demoniac dabber comes back and dabs me one more fiendish, deliberate, and premeditated dab, making nine hundred and seventy-five dabs in all. He has to do it. It's in the ritual that I and you and everybody must have that last dab. I wonder how many gibbering idiots there are in the asylum today whose reason was overthrown by being dabbed that last farewell dab. I know from my own experience that I can feel the little dark green gibbers sloshing around inside of me every time it happens. And some day my mind will give way altogether, and there will be a hurry call sent in for the wagon with a lock on the back door. Yet it is of no avail to cavil or protest. We cannot hope to escape. We can only sit there in mute and helpless misery, and be filled with a great envy for Mexican hairless dogs. For quite a spell now we have been speaking of hair on the face. At this point, we revert to hair in its relation to the head. There are some few among us, mainly professional southerners and leading men, who retain the bulk of the hair on their heads through life. But with most of us the circumstances are different. Your hair goes from you. You don't seem to notice it at first. Then all of a sudden you wake up to the realization that your head is working its way up through the hair. You start in then desperately doing things for your hair in the hope of inducing it to stick round the old place a while longer. But it has heard the call of the wild, and it is on its way. There's no detaining it. You soak your skull in lotions until your brain softens, and your hatband gets moldy from the damp, but your hair keeps right on going. After a while it's practically gone. If only about two-thirds of it is gone, your head looks like a great auk's egg in a snug nest. But if most of it goes, there is something about you that suggests the glacial period, with an icy barren peak rising high above the vegetation line, where a thin line of heroic strands still cling to the slopes. You are bald, then, a subject fit for the japes of the wicked and universally coupled in the betting with onions, with hard-boiled eggs, and with the front row of orchestra chairs at a musical show. At this time of writing, baldness is creeping insidiously up each side of my head. It is executing flank movements from the temples northward, and some day the two columns will meet and after that I'll be considerably more of a highbrow than I am now. At present I am craftily combing the remaining thatch in the middle and smoothing it out nice and flat, so as to keep those bare spots covered, thinly perhaps, but nevertheless covered. It is my earnest desire to continue to keep them covered. I am not a professional beauty. I am not even what you would call a good amateur beauty. But I want to make what little hair I have go as far as it conveniently can. 
but does the barber to whom i repair at frequent intervals coincide with my desire in this respect again i reply he does not every time i go in i speak to him about it i say to him woodman spare that hair touch not a single strand in youth it sheltered me and i'll protect it now or in substance that he says yes he will but he doesn't mean it he waits until he can catch me with my guard down then he seizes a comb and using the edge of his left hand as a bevel and operating his right with a sort of free-arm spencerian movement he roaches my hair up in a scallop effect on either side and upon reaching the crest he fights with it and wrestles with it until he makes it stand erect in a feather-edged design i can tell by his expression that he is pleased with this arrangement he loves to send his victims forth into the world tufted like the fretful cockatoo he likes to see surging waves of hair dash high on a stern and rock-bound head his sense of the artistic demands such a result what cares he how i feel about it so long as the higher cravings of his own nature are satisfied but i resent it i resent it bitterly i object to having my head look like a real estate development with an opening for a new street going up each side and an ornamental design in fancy landscape gardening across the top if i permit this i won't be able to keep on saying that i was twenty-seven on my last birthday with some hope of getting away with it so i insist that he put my front hair right back where he found it he does so under protest and begrudgingly it is true but he does it and then watching his opportunity he runs in on me and overpowers me and roaches it up some more if i weaken and submit he is happy as the day is long if he gets it roached up on both sides that will make me look like a horizontal bar performer which is his idea of manly beauty or if he gets it roached up on one side only there is still some consolation in it for him i'm liable to be mistaken anywhere for a trained animal performer but once in a very great while he doesn't get it roached up on either side but has to stand there and suffer as he sees me walk forth into the world with my hair combed to suit me and not him i can tell by his look that he is grieved and downcast and that he will probably go home and be cross to the children he has but one solace he hopes to have better luck with me next time and probably he will the last age of hair is a wig but wigs are not very satisfactory either i've seen all the known varieties of wigs and i never saw one yet that looked as though it were even on speaking terms with the head that was under it a wig always looks as though it were a total stranger to the head and had just lit there a minute to rest preparatory to flying along to the next head nevertheless i think on the whole i'll be happier when my time comes to wear one because then no barber can roach me up end of chapter three hair